Chapter 43 of The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. We had a tedious ride of about five hours in the sun across the valley of Lebanon. It proved to be not quite so much of a garden as it had seemed from the hillsides. It was a desert, we'd grown waste littered thickly with stones the size of a man's fist. Here and there the natives had scratched the ground and reared a sickly crop of grain, but for the most part the valley was given up to a handful of shepherds whose flocks were doing what they honestly could to get a living. But the chances were against them. We saw rude piles of stones standing near the roadside at intervals, and recognized the custom of marking boundaries which obtained in Jacob's time. There were no walls, no fences, no hedges, nothing to secure a man's possessions but these random heaps of stones. The Israelites held them sacred in the old patriarchal times, and these other Arabs, their lineal descendants, do so likewise. An American of ordinary intelligence would soon widely extend his property at an outlay of mere manual labor performed at night under so loose a system of fencing as this. The plows these people use are simply a sharpened stick such as Abraham plowed with, and they still winnow their wheat as he did. They pile it on the housetop and toss it by shovelfuls into the air until the wind has blown all the chaff away. They never invent anything, never learn anything. We had a fine race of a mile with an Arab perched on a camel. Some of the horses were fast and made very good time, but the camel scampered by them without any very great effort. The yelling and shouting and whipping and galloping of all parties interested made it a exhilarating exciting and particularly boisterous race at eleven o'clock our eyes fell upon the walls and columns of Baalbek, a noble ruin whose history is a sealed book it has stood there for thousands of years the wonder and admiration of travelers but who built it or when was it built, are questions that may never be answered. One thing is very sure, though, such grandeur of design and such grace of execution as one sees in the temples of Baalbek have not been equaled or even approached in any work of men's hands that have been built within twenty centuries past. The great temple of the sun, the temple of Jupiter, and several smaller temples are clustered together in the midst of one of these miserable Syrian villages, and looks strangely enough in such plebeian company. These temples are built upon massive substructions that might support a world, almost. The materials used are blocks of stone as large as an omnibus. Very few, if any of them, are smaller than a carpenter's tool chest and these substructions are traversed by tunnels of masonry 
through which a train of cars might pass. Such foundations as these, it's little wonder that Baalbek has lasted so long. The Temple of the Sun is nearly 300 feet long and 160 feet wide. It had 54 columns around it, but only six are standing now. The others lie broken at its base, a confused and picturesque heap. The six columns are perfect, as are also their bases, Corinthian capitals and entablature, and six more shapely columns do not exist. The columns and the entablature together are ninety feet high, a prodigious altitude for shafts of stone to reach, truly, and yet one only thinks of their beauty and symmetry when looking at them. The pillars look slender and delicate. The entablature, with its elaborate sculpture, looks like rich stucco work. But when you have gazed aloft till your eyes are weary, you glance at the great fragments of pillars among which you are standing and find that they are eight feet through, and with them lie beautiful capitals apparently as large as a small cottage and also single slabs of stone, superbly sculptured, that are four or five feet thick and would completely cover the floor of any ordinary parlor. You wonder where these monstrous things came from, and it takes some little time to satisfy yourself that the airy, graceful fabric that towers above your head is made up of their mates. It seems too preposterous. The Temple of Jupiter is a smaller ruin than the one I have been speaking of, and, and yet is immense. It is in a tolerable state of preservation. One row of nine columns stands almost uninjured. There are sixty-five feet high and support a sort of porch or roof which connects them with the roof of the building. This porch roof is composed of tremendous slabs of stone which are so finely sculptured on the underside that the work looks like a fresco from below. One or two of these slabs have fallen, and again I wondered if the gigantic masses of carved stone that lay about me were no larger than those above my head. Within the temple the ornamentation was elaborate and colossal. What a wonder of architectural beauty and grandeur this edifice must have been when it was new, and what a noble picture it and its statelier companion, with the chaos of mighty fragments scattered about them, yet makes in the moonlight. I cannot conceive how those immense blocks of stone were ever hauled from the quarries or how they were raised to the dizzying heights they occupy in the temples. And yet, these sculptured blocks are trifles in size compared with the rough-hewn blocks that form the wide veranda or platform which surrounds the great temple. One stretch of that platform, 200 feet long, is composed of blocks of stone as large and some of them larger than a street car. 
They surmount a wall about ten or twelve feet high. I thought those were large rocks, but they sank into insignificance compared with those which formed another section of the platform. These were three in number, and I thought that each of them was about as long as three streetcars placed end to end, though, of course, they are a third wider and a third higher than a streetcar. Perhaps two railway freight cars of the largest pattern placed end to end might better represent their size. In combined length, these three stones stretch nearly 200 feet. They are 13 feet square, two of them are 64 feet long each, and the third is 69. They are built into a massive wall some 20 feet above the ground. They are there, but how they got there is the question. I have seen the hull of a steamboat that was smaller than one of these stones. All these great walls are as exact and as shapely as the flimsy things we build of bricks in these days. A race of gods or of giants must have inhabited the Baalbek many a century ago. Men like the men of our day could hardly rear such temples as these. We went to the quarry from whence the stones of Baalbek were taken. It was about a quarter of a mile off and downhill. In a great pit lay the mate of the largest stone in the ruins. It lay there just as the giants of that old forgotten time had left it when they were called hence, just as they left it to remain for thousands of years an eloquent rebuke unto those as are prone to think slightly of the men who lived before them. This enormous block lies there, squared and ready for the builder's hands, a solid mass, fourteen feet by seventeen, and but a few inches less than seventy feet long. Two buggies could be driven abreast of each other on its surface, from one end of it to the other, and leave room enough for a man or two to walk on either side. One might swear that all the John Smiths and John Wilkinsons and all the other pitiful nobodies between Kingdom Come and Baalbek could inscribe their poor little names upon the walls of Baalbek's magnificent ruins, and would add the town, the county, and the state they came from, and swearing thus to be infallibly correct. It is a pity some great ruin does not fall in and flatten out some of these reptiles and scare their kind out of ever giving their names to fame upon the walls or monuments again forever. Properly, with the sorry relics we bestrode, it was a three days' journey to Damascus. It was necessary that we should do it in less than two. It was necessary because our three pilgrims would not travel on the Sabbath day. We were all perfectly willing to keep the Sabbath day, but there are times when to keep the letter of a sacred law, whose spirit is righteous, becomes a sin. And this was a case in point. We pleaded for the tired, ill-treated horses, and tried to show that their faithful service 
deserved kindness in return, and their hard lot compassion. But when did ever self-righteousness know the sentiment of pity? What were a few long hours added to the hardship of some overtaxed brutes when weighed against the peril of those human souls? It was not the most promising party to travel with and hope to gain a higher veneration for religion through the example of its devotees. We said the Savior, who pitied dumb beasts and taught that the ox must be rescued from the mire even on the Sabbath day, would not have counseled a forced march like this. We said the long trip was exhausting and therefore dangerous in the blistering heats of summer, even when the ordinary day's stages were traversed. And if we persisted in this hard march, some of us might be stricken down with the fevers of the country in consequence of it. Nothing could move the pilgrims. They must press on. Men might die, horses might die, but they must enter upon holy soil next week with no Sabbath-breaking stain upon them. Thus they were willing to commit a sin against the spirit of religious law in order that they might preserve the letter of it. It was not worth while to tell them the letter kills. I am talking now about personal friends, men whom I like, men who are good citizens, who are honorable, upright, conscientious, but whose idea of the Savior's religion seems to me distorted. They lecture our shortcomings unsparingly, and every night they call us together and read us chapters from the Testament that are full of gentleness, of charity, and of tender mercy, then all the next day they stick to their saddles, clear up to the summits of these rugged mountains, and clear down again, applying the Testament's gentleness and charity and tender mercy to a toiling, worn, and weary horse? Nonsense. These are for God's human creatures, not his dumb ones. What the pilgrims choose to do, respect for their most sacred character demands that I should allow to pass, but I would so like to catch any other member of the party riding his horse up one of those exhausting hills once. We have given the pilgrims a good many examples that might benefit them, but it is a virtue thrown away. They have never heard a cross word out of our lips towards each other, but they have quarreled once or twice. We love to hear them at it, after they've been lecturing us. The very first thing they did, coming ashore at Beirut, was to quarrel in the boat. I have said I like them, and I do like them, but every time they read me a scorcher of a lecture, I mean to talk back in print. Not content with doubling the legitimate stages, they switched off the main road and went way out of the way to visit an absurd fountain called Figia, because Balaam's ass had drank there once. So we journeyed on through the terrible hills and deserts and the roasting sun and, and far into the night, seeking the honored pool of Balaam's ass, the patron saint of all pilgrims like us. I find no entry but this in my notebook, 
rode today altogether thirteen hours through deserts partly and partly over barren unsightly hills and laterally through wild rocky scenery and camped out about eleven o'clock at night on the banks of a limpid stream near a syrian village do not know its name do not wish to know it want to go to bed two horses lame mine and jack's and the others worn out jack and i walked three or four miles over the hills and led the horses fun but a of a mild type twelve or thirteen hours in the saddle even in a christian land and a christian climate and on a good horse is a tiresome journey but in an oven like syria and a ragged spoon of a saddle that slips fore and aft and thwart ships in every way and on a horse that is tired and lame and yet must be whipped and spurred with hardly a moment's cessation all day long till the blood comes from his side and your conscience hurts you every time you strike if you are half a man it is a journey to be remembered in bitterness of spirit and execrated with emphasis for a liberal division of a man's lifetime end of chapter forty three recording by b scott holmes b scott holmes dot com